following audio is from the Anglican Church, Caroline Springs. For more information about the church, go to taccs.org.au. So I'm excited this morning to talk about death. I don't think I've ever, um, ever in my life coordinated my wardrobe, but I was looking in the mirror in the bathroom before I came up here, and I thought I've done pretty well, actually, to, to uh, dress in black from head to toe, because it's pretty black in the text this morning. The, the subject really is the reality of death, and um, if, if, you've, if you've been thinking so far that Ecclesiastes is a, is a, bit, of a bit of a downer, a bit of a depressing book, a bit of an emo book, well, it's been, it's been upbeat until now, okay? So he's, a, he's about to go into some pretty serious despair and depression, but... He's going to bring us out the other side as well, okay? And by God's grace, we're going to go away with some um, hope and encouragement this morning. So if you've got a Bible, go to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 12 to the end of the chapter. I won't read it all now because we'll read it all as we go along. But um, I'm guessing it's number 554. Is that right? 554, page 554. Is that right? That's right. All right. I figured out the other day that even though my Bible is different to yours, it's got the same page number as yours. So praise the Lord for that. All right. Small mercies. So um, this morning we're going to talk about death, and I want to start out by just telling you a couple of stories, okay? Death themed stories. When I was 26, I took my first funeral, and, um, and uh, the thing about funerals and weddings for that matter is that it's really hard to take a funeral or a wedding if you haven't done the preparation with the people involved in the lead up to the funeral or the wedding. Okay, so for weddings, um, pre-marital counselling and engaging around what the service means and what the words mean, that, that is, if I do that with a couple, I'm going to be a better uh, preacher on the day, I'm going to be a better officiator on the day than if I just walk in and try and do it without the relationship. And it's the same with funerals. So with funerals, generally what happens is the, um, the funeral uh, directors will give me a call and say, uh, so-and-so has died. Normally it's, uh, they were Church of England, right? They, they're Anglican. They haven't been to church for a while, but they want to do this thing in an Anglican church. And so then I'll, I'll make a time to go and meet with that family and we'll sit down together and, and work the thing out together. And, and of course, every time it happens, no matter what the circumstances for the death, you're walking into a house of mourning. There are people who are sad. Normally family is gathered by the time I get in there and there's just a heaviness about the place. So my first funeral, I was uh, 26. I was just a kid. Um, my first month of full-time ministry, and, um, and I walked through the, the whole thing with the family, and it became apparent really quick that this guy was Church of England, but he wasn't Church of Jesus Christ, all right? He was, he was nominally attached to the Anglican Church. He wasn't a believer. And so I had to make the decision really early on how I would approach that funeral. Would I, would I kind of regale the crowd with sweet nothings about golf courses in the sky, or would I go after the opportunity and, take, and preach the gospel and take advantage of the, of the small window in time where they're actually thinking about death before they go back to, as Jimmy said, numbing themselves with the ordinary, okay? And so I, I, uh, I asked my boss at the time what I should do, and he said, you just got to preach the gospel, man. Like, this is your opportunity. You got about a week before they stop thinking about death. Um... And so I just got up there and I, and I preached, I, I, I preached like crazy. There was about two people from our church who were there who were kind of nodding encouragingly on the way through. Everyone else was like this. And there was one guy who all the way through was just going. So that was fun. And... Um, After the service, we had a refreshments in the hall, and um, 
and I saw this guy coming from a mile away, right? I, just, I, I was eyeballing him because he was eyeballing me. It was like just burning into me. And he was one of the first people that came up to me after the initial kind of thanks for doing that. That was nice. And, and, he, was, and, and he, he just came up to me fuming. And he said to me, what the, what the hell do you know about life? What do you know about life? And I, I mean, I, I look kind of young for my age at the best of times, but at 26, I was like straight out of primary school, all right? And so, I, you know, and, 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 and my next disadvantage is I'm in a dress, okay? Because these guys, they specifically requested that I wear traditional Anglican robes, right? Church of England robes. So I'm in a dress. I'm 26. Um, the upside was that I'd been laboring um, on construction sites for about five years up to that. So I was pretty, I was pretty big. Um, for, for, for me, anyway, and, and so I was feeling a little confident. I was 26, so I was dumb enough to be confident, and this guy came up to me and said, what the hell do you know about life? He said, have you ever, have you ever had a career before this one? I said, no. I worked a lot of jobs. I never had a career before this one. Um, and he said, so what gives you the right to tell me what life is about? You, you, are, you are manipulating a situation, an emotionally charged situation, telling me what to do. Most guys above 45 are like this, I found, if you're 26 trying to tell them what life's about. And so I was feeling pretty confident at this point, and I said, um, and I quote, I said, um, tell me more, old man. Because it was me and him now, like everyone else had kind of done this. <laughs> tell, tell, tell me more. It's like, you've got no idea. You don't have any kids, do you? No. You've never worked a job. You've never had a career. Is this your first funeral? I was hoping you wouldn't go there. I was like, yeah, it is. And after he was finished kind of berating me, I said, uh, Let's, let's keep doing this. Like, man to man, tell me honestly, how many funerals have you been to this year? Just this one. I said, how many funerals have you been to in the last five years? None. I said, how many funerals have you taken for family members? Young ones. None. Here's the thing, and I, and, I, and I believe this absolutely with everything that, that I have, that you don't know anything about life until you know something about death. Tweet that. You don't know anything about life until you know something about death, and it's elementary. Like, that's obvious. You can't grab a book, pick up the Hobbit and read to, to the midpoint of the book and then claim to know everything about the book. You don't know anything about life until you know something about death. Because death is the last chapter in everyone's story. Everyone. And what we've done is build up in the last 100, 200, 300, maybe 500 years, built up a culture that worships youth and completely, completely sweeps the reality of death under the carpet. And it's insane because youth lasts this long. doesn't matter how many creams you put on your face, right? How many green leafy vegetables you eat, how much yoga and Pilates you do, Youth is this much of your life and the inevitability of death is there for anyone, every one of us and some of us won't even see youth before that day comes. So you don't know anything about life until you know something about death. 
You think because you built a company, you know something about life? Come talk to me when you've been in the room with a dead baby. And we can talk about life. Life experience. When I was seven years old, my mum had just come back from South Korea. They'd adopted my younger sister, six-month-old, from Seoul, from an orphanage over there. They'd come back from overseas, um, brought her into our family. It was this great demonstration of the gospel, like one of the best illustrations of the gospel that I know. The adoption of someone who had no place with us, who had no access to our riches, who had no right to be part of our family, and through the adopting work of my parents was folded into our family, made to be a co-heir of everything that is theirs with me and my two other brothers. Beautiful demonstration of the gospel. If you don't haven't thought about adopting, you need to start thinking today. And then we kind of got this family going with this, all of a sudden we had this little girl. We'd never had a girl. It was me and two brothers and we this girl, all of a sudden, not knowing what to do with this girl, and she was to look different, and she, you know, she was she's Asian, and she had spiky hair, and she's real chubby, and um, and so we got 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 after that, and just got into the the work of doing life with this new addition, and it was like instantly family, right? There was no, there was no, we didn't have to be sat down and taught like, you know, she's really part of us. She was part of us. She was up. She was ours. And then within months, I remember coming into my parents' room with my two brothers. And I remember vividly jumping up on the, the side of my, my mum's side of the bed. I, I always went that way. My older brothers wanted to dive on dad because you got wrestles. I wanted snuggles. I was, I was that kid. And so straight on to my mum. And as soon as I did that, something was different this time. And dad and, dad and mum were both like, hey, 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 just, just, just relax. Just, just, just hop off. Hop off, mum. And the reason they called us into the room and to jump up on the bed was to tell us that she had to go to the hospital and, and she was having some pain and, and they weren't sure what it was and so she would have to go and she was going to be there for a while. It was going to take a while for them to, to do this and so she was going to go and live at, at Heidelberg House at the Austin Hospital there in, in Heidelberg. And, um, and then it seems like seconds, minutes later, it was really months, but we're putting her into the ground. She just went off the edge of the cliff. I don't know if you've ever been around someone with cancer, and I've only got vague memories, but just the toll that that medication takes on their body and just disintegrates. And so my mum went from being this really vivacious, energetic mother of four to this just this this pile of bones, really quick. And ever since then, I've had this constant, constant, like a, like a shadow over me, realization of the reality of death, right? Because every time one of your friends says, Mum, it reminds you, you don't have one. I can remember not saying that word for years and then having it feel weird in my mouth to say it, Mum. And I'd never called her mum, I always called her mummy. So even to say today, mum instead of mummy feels weird. So I've lived with that constant reminder of the reality of death. But you can go throughout much of your life in this culture without ever coming to terms with that. hundred years ago, babies are dying all the time. hundred years ago, 150 million people around the world died of the flu. Right? Didn't discriminate. Poor, rich, northern hemisphere, southern hemisphere, like measles, mumps, these things killed you. This was the reality that we lived in. Now what have we got? Nursing homes. Huh? How many, how many of you guys, let's just be honest, how many of you guys have been to a nursing home in the last month? Two. That's where we keep the dead and the dying. We keep them away from our sight. 
They distract us from our pursuit of youth. They remind us of our mortality and we hate it. So I'm not dissing you. Know, I'm, I'm just saying this is our culture. This is, this is, this is how we work. I remember a few years ago, not long actually after that funeral visit, I went to the house of a man, a big man. And this church I was part of was a really traditional church, it was 155 years old, and I'd seen the photos around the place, and in every one of them there was just this giant man. And he had you know, grown up in Doncaster, his parents owned the orchards that are now Westfield shopping town, right? And, and, and he'd, he'd been part of the church. The, you know, the church was just part of who he was, baptised there and buried there, eventually. He was a big guy. And my, my um, induction there, he was one of the first to come up to me and just swallow my arm with his hand, right? Just like, just feel the disappointment <laughs> as he connected with my Bible school soft little girly hand, crunching. And I visited him towards the end of my first year there and I, vi- I went to his room. He had gone home by this stage. The hospital had given up on him. He was going to die. And I went into his room and there was just this immense sack of bones there. Taking up the whole length of the bed. Big skull with sagging skin. Huge hands, but skeletal hands. And I remember sitting down next to him and, and taking his hand and just feeling him crush mine, right? He's, he's, he's dazed from death and he's still crushing my hand. Like it hurt. And I, was just, I, just, I just leant in, put my head on his pillow, and I was just whispering the gospel to him. Just whispering the gospel to him. Just telling him the gospel, just reading the gospel, reading Romans 8, right? It's beautiful, beautiful text. John 14, Psalm 23, Revelation 21 and 22, and just, just, and just having him crush my hand like, yes. And even though that was a kind of a triumphant moment for me, being able to say those things and have him respond, it seemed, with recognition, all I could think about for the next week was, I'm going to be that guy. I'm going to be that guy. Like, if God is gracious, I'm going to be that guy. If God is gracious and gives me 80 years, like, like that guy had, then I'm going to be him. I'm going to be a very much smaller sack of bones in a bed, God willing, having someone coming and reminding me of the gospel as I gasp. That's me. That's you. That's the reality that awaits every one of us if we're not killed by a bus or cancer doesn't take us down real quick. Mercifully quick then every one of us is going to be on that bed one day gasping for air. God help us trusting in the gospel, in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. So this is the reality I need us to have in mind this morning because Solomon is coming in to the end of chapter 2 and he's got this on his mind. He's got this reality on his mind and through the book so far, he's been hinting at it, just the frustration, the futility, the anger that he feels that he is going through life, giving it everything. And realising over and over again that it's all meaningless if this life ends with death if this life is summarized as life lived under the sun, nothing more. And it all comes to a head from here and he just freaks out a little bit. Let's read it together. I'm going to read verse uh, 12 
through 17. He's just experimented with pleasure. Remember last week, if you didn't didn't hear it, then go and check it out. It's all about his exploits in pleasure. And now he's going to turn. He says, so I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Tune in, this is it. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said to my heart that this also is vanity, it's meaningless. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will be long forgotten, how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Do you hear what he's saying there? I've been wise. I've worked hard. I've, I've built a kingdom, the most prosperous that the world's ever seen. I've chased all of these hopes and all of these dreams. I've sucked the marrow out of life And now he comes to the realization that all that's left is this bone, this dry bone, because he is going to die just like the most foolish man in his kingdom. In the same way, on the same deathbed, with the same lack of remembrance of who he is and what he's done. So he says, What's the point? I hate life now. I've come to this conclusion and it makes me hate life. What's the point of life? What's the point of being wise? What's the point of being industrious? What's the point of being great? Because, listen, this is what he's saying. At the end of the day, my sons are going to get what I've got and they're morons. They're a bunch of morons. They don't have my wisdom. They don't have my work ethic. No one's packing the hearse with my stuff. And he stands out in wisdom in this case because you think about it, at at this time, 1,000 years BC, everyone around him, all the kings around him are are, are blind to this. He's got Pharaoh across the the Red Sea there. He's getting buried with everything, Right? You've been to the tombs? Everything. All my stuff, pack it in there with me. In fact, even put in some live people. Put in some of my slaves and some of my concubines. Chuck them in. Chuck some animals in because I'm going to need them. I'm taking this stuff with me. And then we dig it up last century and it's all there. Why? Because you don't take any of it with you. Huh? All this stuff that we toil after, that we hope for, that we put our trust in, that we work friggin' 50, 60, 70 hours a week for, that big house that you love going back to just so you can collapse and die for a night of five hours sleep so you can get back to work to pay it off, that thing, that treadmill, none of it, none of it goes with you. Listen, there's no trailer behind the hearse. Huh? So Solomon's got some wisdom. He's come to the conclusion, he's like, the pharaohs, they're idiots, all right? At least I know none of this is coming with me. But it leads him to despair. You think in Solomon's case, well, by God's grace, he's got some remembrance. It's not a good legacy, by the way. You read on 1 Kings. It doesn't end well. At least we know his name. Most people, like everyone in this room, 
you're between 30 and 60 years from being forgotten forever. Let that sink in. I saw this interview earlier this week with Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan, when I was growing up, was, he may as well have been Jesus. Right? I, I was right into basketball and he, he was just this phenomenal. Whatever you're into, insert just the, the, the best, most prolific, most prodigious person in that field that's ever lived. That was Michael Jordan to basketball. I read an interview this last week. Uh, you, can, you can get it. The article about the interview is on the Gospel Coalition website if you want to check it out. Um, it was actually done in 2013, but anyway, Google it. And Michael Jordan had turned 50 years old and someone interviewed him. And it's just remarkable the, the pain in his voice when he talks about what it's like to be a 50-year-old God. A 50-year-old athlete. Like, he, he still has everything. He's got more than he ever had in terms of money. He's the, he's the head of the billion-dollar Air Jordan section of Nike. He owns a few sports teams as well as, I don't know, how many houses and whatever else he's got. His security team, have, they have code names for the people on the board. His code name? Yahweh. I am. Right? He even admits, he, he admits that he's got this God-like ego. Because for most of his life now, right, 50, most of his life now, he has been God to a lot of people. So my friend sent me a message this last week and he said, um, I know you're going through Ecclesiastes, he's been listening in online and he said, uh, you should tell your people this story. He said he read that interview and he wanted to test out uh, just how God-like Michael Jordan was. So he went into his CRE class, grade three and fours, and he said, put your hand up if you know who Michael Jordan is. No one. And these kids like basketball. They're into basketball. The greatest player who's ever played just turned 50, nothing. No recognition. They're like, is he, I don't know, is he, is he going to be teaching us next week? Like, no, nothing. Now just put yourself somewhere next to, like, he says there's no remembrance for all this work, for all this toil, for all of this fame. There's nothing. No one's going to remember me. We were walking through the city yesterday, Suzanne and Jimmy and Sarah and myself. We walked um, out of the gardens. We went to go into a conference and we saw this statue on St Kilda Road. It's right in the median strip, this statue. And, uh, and each one of us said to the other, who's that? No idea. He's got a statue in the middle of one of the biggest roads in Melbourne, we've got absolutely no idea who he is. Do you think they're going to have a statue of you out here? Caroline Springs Boulevard, when this is like the, the new city of Melbourne, right? It's a little prophecy there. Are, they, are you going to have a... No, you're not. You're going to have nothing. You're going to be vaguely remembered by maybe your grandchildren. Maybe. And Solomon says, this is really annoying. This is really frustrating. What is the point? Why am I doing this? Why am I building myself up? Why am I wise? Why don't I just become a fool? It's easier to be a fool. Ignorance is bliss. I wouldn't be kept up every night worrying about my kingdom. I'll just, I could just, just pack it in. You encouraged? All right, let's keep going. Verse 18 to 23 says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be the master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair. 
over all the toil of my labours under the sun. Because sometimes a person, he says sometimes, just insert always. Where were we? Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun for all the days, all his days, are full of sorrow and his work is vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. I hate life. I hate toil. I hate everything that I've, I've strived for. I hate the fact that I have poured myself into this kingdom and pursued wisdom and pursued pleasure and pursued prosperity. I hate that I've done all of that because now I've realized someone else gets it and they haven't even worked for it. I'm just going to give myself over to despair now. Screw this. What's the point? A little while ago, I... Um, we're family here. Can I just take out this gum and put it on this table? Let's do that. All right. A little while ago, I, um, I won't say who it was um, because that would be unfair, but I was talking to someone who said to me they were uh, going to really enjoy their retirement years. They had just entered retirement. And um, he, he said kind of with a, a bit of a sly grin that he was looking forward to going on a ski trip. I was like, man, you've never been skiing in your life and you're in no shape to do it. All right? <laughs> so I, I don't know what you're talking about. And, he, and, and the joke was, he didn't mean a ski trip. He, mean, he meant, have you heard this? Spending kids' inheritance. That's what he was going to be doing. He was going to go on a trip, this woman he was living with, and it was going to be a ski trip. It was going to be taking everything he had amassed and spending it. Spending kids' inheritance. Because his view was, I worked for it. I'm not going to leave it to these morons. What's the point of working hard, working hard, working hard? I'm not just going to leave it to someone who hasn't earned it. I'm going to spend that inheritance. Have some fun. That's what Solomon's getting at now. That's, that's what he's feeling. The futility of toil. Look, death comes to us all. Every one of us is going to end up in the back of a hearse on the way to, the, to the, either the crematorium, burn you up, or to the graveyard, bury you six feet under. They're probably going to paint you up and dress you up and make you look pretty neat, but at the end of the day, you're either going to be burned up or wasting away in the ground. That's the reality. Solomon's just come to that realization, and his response is, well... Carpe diem. Let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die, right? I'm not going to leave it to anyone else. Let's just make the most of it. And you're going to see this through the rest of the book. There, He has these points of despair that lead him to say, well, eat, drink and be merry. That's a biblical phrase, by the way. Eat, drink and be merry. Tomorrow we die. No one's going to get my stuff. There is hope coming, all right? Before you leave, there's hope coming. It says at the end of that passage there, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun for all his days full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This is vanity. It's not only the work that we give ourselves to in our vocation and our, in our occupation, but it's the, the effect that that has on the rest of our lives. Worrying, worrying, worrying all day long. I don't know if this is you. Maybe you, maybe you don't suffer because of this, but I, but I do. I'm, I'm that guy who's just constantly, the cogs are turning. 
You have it set out in your calendar, right? This is work time, this is family time, but it's just all work time, really. The cogs are turning, worry, anxiety, what about this, what about this? Not only just worry and anxiety, but what about this new idea, what about this new opportunity? Someone says that's what it's like for him. Even at night his heart doesn't rest. All of it's toil and all of it is meaningless. It's going to leave us it's going to leave us with something to hope for. Let's read the rest of this passage, verse 24 to the end. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat and who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to have one who pleases God. Sorry, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. So here's what just happened. He just went through pretty steep despair and now he's coming out with a bit of hope. I don't know about you, but I'm I'm a 100% verbal processor. Do you know what that means? That that means I, I can't just think things out for myself. I need to talk them through. And so my wife's life when I'm around is me constantly coming up to her and just going, yeah, I just want to think about this and, um, and just talking it out. And sometimes she doesn't even need to say anything. I just talk and then I'm like, yeah, I got it, sweetie, I got it. Um, and, and most of the time, if I'm wise, I'll let her have a say because she's really wise. But often I'll come to her and, and in the space of five minutes, I'll go from this, you know, bottom of the pit, depression, there's no hope, I don't know what to do, I'm confused, I'm worried, I'm, I to five minutes later going, yeah, all right, got it, we're good. Kind of excited, actually. So that, that verbal processing, I think Solomon's like this. Because in the space of a few verses, he's, he's, he said, this is all crap, this is all worthless. I hate my life, I hate my job. And then he comes up out of it going, you know, God gives enjoyment to people in their work and in their life who trust in him. He's kind of talked it out. He's gone under the sun in this life, in the realm of materialism and secularism and humanism. This sucks. There's nothing in this for anyone. But then he remembers who God is. He remembers that life is about more than just under the sunness. He remembers that there is hope beyond the grave for those who trust in God. And he says, because of that, you know, I can get enjoyment out of this thing. There is joy to be had. There is enjoyment that comes from the hand of God. They should eat and drink and find enjoyment in toil, in their work. Enjoy food, enjoy wine or water or wherever your conscience is. Enjoy what God has given you. Enjoy the work that you get to be a part of from day to day. He's given wisdom and knowledge and joy to those who trust in Him. And so His answer for the problem, His answer for the the despair that He was in, his, His way out of it is to remember that those who trust in Jesus, those who are believers... The opportunity is given to them, and he says, and it's not given to people who aren't, right? So this might sound a little bit arrogant, but this is, this is what he's saying. There is something given to believers, something given to those who trust in God, something given to Christians that isn't given to others, which results in joy and enjoyment and satisfaction and fulfillment in the toil of their life. That's huge. That's huge. Because without that, those last two verses, we're going out of here like we're, we're leaving the funeral. Like our own funeral. Right? This sucks. What's the point? But if this is true, if, so, if what Solomon is saying is, for the believer, even in the midst of toil, even in the midst of heartbreak, even in the midst of 
seeming futility, there is enjoyment, there is joy, there is satisfaction for those who trust in the Lord, even in the context of our vaporous, soon-to-be-forgotten life, then that's something for us to hold on to, friends. That's something that will actually get you out of bed tomorrow morning when you suddenly got a bad case of Monday-itis. And there's enjoyment for me here. Here's here's why. For the person who doesn't worship Jesus, all of life's experience, all of life's experiences, from the, the most mundane to the most profound exist for themselves. Okay? So I, 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 uh, I'm a big fan of a few kinds of beer from a few brewers. All right? I'm very particular. So for the unbeliever, having a, a beautifully crafted beer from a centuries-old brewery in the west of Europe somewhere right, in, in a, in a piss, picturesque um, ancient brewery, for the unbeliever, that experience of joy and satisfaction and enjoyment terminates on the experience, right? You get to the, the bottom of the bottle. Put another way, I don't know, chocolate. You get to the end of the block. Marriage. You get to the end of the honeymoon. Or the honeymoon period. Suddenly you figure out she snores, he stinks, right? This wasn't in the brochure. The enjoyment of life from the mundane to the profound terminates on the experience itself. And that is meaningless. That is futility. That is vanity. Living life that way, you just go through a series of experiences and more, you become more and more insatiable for those experiences and that's why you get 9 out of 10 divorces today. Absolutely true. That's why you get people going after the experience of taking drugs or drinking too much alcohol or having promiscuous sex. Or you, know, you, just, you just fill in the blanks. Or spending 90 hours a week at work. It's this insatiable thirst for something that will go beyond itself. Something that won't terminate in that experience. Now, here's where it's different for the believer. I drink that beer out of the former Yugoslavia. And I enjoy the experience of tasting and consuming that beer. And then when there's nothing left in the bottle, I say, thank you, Jesus, for beer. I love that beer. Thank you, Lord, for the experience. Thank you, Lord, for giving me taste buds. Thank you, Lord, for providing the water and the hops and the malt and the wheat and nothing else to make that delicious beer. Thank you, Lord. See, the joy the experience of satisfaction goes past the thing itself. That thing only exists to lead you to worship. That thing is a tool in the hands of God to lead you to greater satisfaction and enjoyment and the expression of worship completes the joy. Amen? You experience this? You ever experienced something great, but... You, you didn't have your phone to take a photo of it and tell everyone else on Facebook and there was no one else around you and you're kind of like, oh, I wish I could tell someone about this. It's just me. That is the desire within you to complete the joy in praise. Advertisers have got onto this. They've found out fairly recently that the most powerful marketing tool that you can get is word of mouth marketing, viral marketing, right? 
I tell you, you've you got to go down to Brew Brothers Cafe. It's amazing. It's amazing coffee. I'm doing this on Facebook a lot. I don't know if you've seen. I'm just, I, I, lo- I love that cafe. John, Hong, you guys, I love you. I just want to thank you, Jesus, for giving us those brothers and for their desire to start a cafe in Caroline Springs with good coffee. Praise you, Jesus. Now, the reason that people spread the news about things that they've experienced and enjoyed is because there is an inherent desire in all of us to complete our joy in the expression of our enjoyment. Unless, everyone look right at me, look, look right at me now. Unless you are completing those joyful experiences with heartfelt worship, you will never experience satisfaction in those things. And you'll just go after the, the even more rare beer with the higher alcohol content to numb the fact that you can't get satisfaction out of that thing. You will go after the new wife, the new husband. You'll be looking to other people's kids and being jealous. Right? You'll, just go, you'll, you'll go through all of these experiences of life that are meant to lead you to worship and have joy and enjoyment and fulfillment and, and satisfaction and you'll be left empty instead. That's what Solomon's saying. For the believer, for the one who's looking to please God, even in their toil, they can have joy. That's what a dying world needs to hear. What they're, what they're seeing in us is we hate drugs, we hate alcohol, we hate sex, we hate enjoyment, and God hates it as well. And if you enjoy anything, he will smite you. I had one kid I was talking to recently who said, I can't wait to go to hell and then just laugh at all the people in heaven who are bored. Points for honesty. God hates pleasure and enjoyment and good things, and that's Satan's stuff. That's going to be unreal. Can't wait. Completely flip the thing on its head. Every good thing, every good and perfect thing comes to us from the Father of lights. Every, every ounce of enjoyment that you get from eating steak, from drinking wine, from having sex, from toiling hard and seeing the fruits of your labor, from getting out with David into the garden and planting things and seeing it grow. Every ounce of enjoyment comes from God, was designed by God to lead us back to God. God. He puts in us a desire to to want to be satisfied. He puts in us a desire to want to express it. And then we go and make it all about us. Make it all about the experience. And he's saying, that, that's just a stop on the destination to, to me, to worship. And if you would experience that, then you would experience t- true joy, true fulfillment, true satisfaction. To the extent that you can enjoy beer without being an alcoholic. It's possible. You can enjoy sex without being promiscuous. So Solomon says, if you can get your eyes on eternity, if you can get your eyes on something that's bigger and greater and more eternal than this paltry, vapor-like, here today, gone today experiences of life, if you can get your eyes fixed on the majesty and glory and, and, and providence of God as the giver of every good gift, then not only will you find joy in having your eyes on Him, you will have joy in the experiences of this life. Christianity is not about getting to heaven so that we can have a good time. It's about in this life, today, eating that, I don't know, chicken roll for lunch and saying, I praise Jesus for this. That's why we say grace. We don't say grace. 
this is a little misunderstanding. We don't say grace to bless the food. We say grace to bless the creator. This food doesn't need blessing. It's good. He's given it to you. He made it. It's great. Don't bless the food. Bless the giver. Grace, this has been given to me. It's a gift. Thank you. It's very hard to find something disappointing if that's your posture. So let me finish with an illustration. I don't know, I've probably gone way over time. Honestly, I don't care. I've tried to care for a few weeks. I just don't. Um, Here's how you can have Here's how you can have enjoyment in all of your toil, even in the crappy jobs that some of you have to work to put food on the table. Here's how you can have joy in that. Get yourself, ask God to give you an eternal perspective where you see this job in this life in the context that the Bible sees it, vaporous like a dot on the ground, and you see eternity stretching out from that point forever and ever, the never-ending line of your existence from that point to there, and then you go into each day thankful for the gifts of God that you come across and hopeful that what you're doing now will impact eternity that what you're doing now has eternal significance. Let me illustrate it like this. I've got a 10-month-old boy. I've got a 10-month-old boy who eats and sleeps and poos himself. Do they do anything more than that? Not really. They suck the life out of you. That's what they do. I mean, they suck the milk out of their mum and they suck the life out of their parents. Up at night, squealing and crying, no consideration for our sleep patterns. Couldn't care less. Throws something on the floor, cries, gets it back and chucks it down again. Sees no irony in that whatsoever. (laughs) Couldn't care less. I just like doing that. And you're going to keep picking it up, aren't you, Dad? That's right. No consideration. It's hard work being the parent of a 10-month-old. It's hard. It's brutally hard. At least with my three-year-old, we can sit down, we can have conversations, we can have a cup of tea. She has, I mean, she, she scares me with her, the profundity of her thoughts, her kind of existential wrestling with the nature of life. Blows my mind. I get something out of that. Him, I get nothing. I'm getting nothing. And here's the thing. Everyone look right at me. I don't mind. I don't mind. I don't mind a a bit. I was at the supermarket the other day and there was me and this one other guy. He'd come from work. He was all kitted up in uh, high vis. And we're both standing in front of the confusing array of um, squirty food for babies. Whatever that stuff's called. You know, it's in a sachet. For India, Renee felt too guilty about giving her that. She was cooking all day. And, doing, and now we're just like, screw this. We're buying that stuff. You know, pour it in. And it was me and this guy. And we're both standing there with bags under our eyes, just like arched over, squinting out of our one good eye, trying to figure out what is what. what I, I, I'm looking at the 10-month-old stuff. He's looking at the six-month-old stuff. So I said, you got a six-month-old? And he said, yeah. So how about you? Yeah, a three-year-old and a ten-month-old. And then he turned to me. He's a pretty pretty rough-looking guy, but he turned to me and just said, it's the best thing in the world, isn't it? I was like, I've got allergies, man. Um, (laughs) Still my way to the Zyrtec. Yeah, it's, it's pretty good. We shared this moment where we just we were chatting for a while, saying, "This this is unreal. I can't believe I get to do this." 
I don't mind because I know, and I got my, my eyes fixed. I was talking to Renee the other day about this. I got my eyes fixed on 15 years' time, sitting outside with Judah, having a, a weird, rare beer out of the Czech Republic, and talking theology. That's what I'm thinking about. Getting up out of bed five times a night, changing nappies, having no idea what I'm doing, half asleep, struggling through work the next day. I don't mind. I'm thinking about that. I'm thinking about the investment in, the, in a future, in a legacy, in a man God willing who will be a man after his own heart, who will be a, a, a mighty man of God. Let me leave you with this passage from Jesus. Matthew 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's what he's saying to Solomon. He's saying, Solomon, get your head out of life under the sun. You're right. It's meaningless. It's chasing after the wind. Get your your head out beyond the sun to eternity and make investments in this life for the life to come. Do your toil. Do your job. Work your nine to five, whatever it is, and do it for eternal impact. Some of you would start enjoying your job so much more if you took 30% of your earnings and gave it away. I guarantee it. The scientific study to back that up, my own experience of, of, of drawing a line in the sand and saying everything over this, we're going to be giving away, not just to church, but to people in need. Joy comes from that. They've done studies where they've taken volunteers who have moved into paid positions doing the same job and found that they are far less satisfied now than they were when they were doing it for free. That's the dynamic at work. When we start laying up treasures on earth, everything comes, becomes about life under the sun and you will, will hate your life and you will hate your toil. But if, like Jesus says, you toil for treasures in heaven, you'll experience great joy. And if in the experiences of life, you let your experience go past that into worship, you will experience great joy and great satisfaction. So I'm not selling you anything. Nothing I've said is going to make the slightest bit of difference to you at all walk out of here and you forget me and you forget what you've heard. But I'm going to pray that by God's grace, he doesn't let us forget this truth. It is so, so important. Let's pray. Father, thank you for reminding us of the reality of death. Every one of us here has one thing in common. Some of us have already lived over half of our lives. And God, it may be true that some of the kids in the creche right now have lived more than half of their lives. Every one of us is going to die. Please forgive us for trying our best to ignore that truth. We do know that death is the enemy that death is not part of your creative, created order. It's not part of your will or intention. Remember Jesus angry at the death of Lazarus even when he knew that he was about to raise him from the dead. Death angers you, Lord. but it is part of our reality here on earth. And Father, I just think it's likely that we would start living much more effective, intentional, and joyful lives if we got in touch with that reality more often. So 
So please remind us of the reality of our own mortality. Please help, I pray that you would help uh, lead us to put our trust in you, the one who does not die and who grants eternal life to all who trust in your son. And I pray for us as we, as we just, as we live out this vaporous life and we come across all of life's difficulties and all of life's delights, that through all of those experiences we would find cause to praise you and worship you for your goodness, your provision. Lord, please remind us as we go out of here soon, we go off to eat and drink and enjoy our families and our friends, remind us not to let those experiences terminate on themselves but to allow them to roll up in praise and worship and adoration for the giver of every good gift. So make us joyful Christians. Make us lovers of experiences that lead us to worship. Make us known to be a people of joy and enjoyment. And please, please make all of this happen by the power of your Holy Spirit that dwells within each one of us. We pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to the Anglican Church Caroline Springs podcast. For more information, go to taccs.org.au.